0: Are we as Protestants cutting ourselves short if we are neglecting this theologian? Uh, and in your experience, why why is there this uh, maybe this unfamiliarity with Thomas uh, in not just Protestantism as a whole, but maybe especially within Evangelicalism?
1: Oftentimes,
2: in our polemical enthusiasm, in our sort of cage stage Protestant phases, uh, we can we can forget what's most central, what's most basic, what's most elemental, Uh, and in doing that, someone like Thomas or many other patristic and medieval figures to whom we ought to turn and learn much, uh, they can seem enemies, they can seem threatening, Uh, they can seem rather beside the point.
1: Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
0: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host, and let me invite you to join me for a theological conversation, this time a conversation about one of the most important theologians in the history of the church. I remember walking into a theology bookstore hidden in the heart of London uh, a while back and asking the owner whether he had the works of Thomas Aquinas. I was really surprised, a little bit shocked when he responded, I don't carry any of that popish rubbish. And uh, I, I, at that time, uh, being shocked as I was, I was nearly kicked out of the store. Uh, but as I left and uh, I was able to take home a few books, uh, none of them by Thomas, unfortunately. But as I left, I started to reflect on that. Really bizarre conversation, and on the one hand, I could sympathize. I understood why this gentleman was uh, reacting that way. Uh, Thomas has been one of the patron saints claimed by the Roman Catholic Church to this day, and we could also say that when we look at Thomas's views on, say, justification and sacraments, we we might be able to put our finger on some of the seeds that later that later theological developments uh, will mature from Thomas's thought into Rome's own teaching on on those same doctrines. But at the same time, that shopkeeper's very stern reaction uh, seemed to confirm, for me at least, that maybe as Protestants, we've been throwing the baby out with the bathwater, uh, as the saying goes. Uh, perhaps we haven't given Thomas uh, full credit for uh, many aspects of his theology. Maybe we've even focused on some aspects to the neglect of other really crucial uh, facets of his theological framework. Well, today I have with me for the Credo podcast, Michael Allen, who is a professor of systematic theology, as well as the academic dean of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. Many of you uh, have most likely come across or even read some of his books, uh, Reformed Theology, uh, Reformed Catholicity, a book written with Scott Swain. Uh, one of his earlier books, the Christ's Faith, as well as uh, Justification and the Gospel. Perhaps his most recent book, though, is a volume called Sanctification, which is in the New, uh, the New Studies in dogmatics Series, which uh, he edits with uh, Scott Swain as well. Mike, uh, very glad to have you uh, today on this Credo podcast.
2: Thanks so much. Glad to be chatting.
0: So let's go back to that. Uh, anecdote that I gave a minute ago. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this type of experience, uh, but uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But regardless, given the massive corpus that Thomas has has contributed to uh, nearly every theological topic under the sun, not to mention his own uh, incomparable intellect and ability to synthesize the whole of Christian theology, Are we as Protestants cutting ourselves short if we are neglecting this theologian? Uh, And in your experience, why why is there this, uh, maybe this unfamiliarity with Thomas uh, in not just Protestantism as a whole, but maybe especially within evangelicalism?
2: Well, Matthew, I I think Thomas is a particularly powerful example of a broader trend that we can oftentimes think about being Protestant in one of two ways, either as a, a productive reform to the Catholic faith, Catholic with a small c, uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, um, or we can think of Protestantism in such a way that, frankly, it becomes parasitic, where certain reforms, certain uh, corrections that were brought about in the 16th and following centuries. Uh, somehow actually eat away at worst or distract at best uh, from the basics of the Christian faith that thankfully have been heralded through the centuries uh, and that we share in common uh, with non-Protestant churches as well and with folks like Thomas. And I think oftentimes in our polemical enthusiasm, in our sort of cage-stage Protestant phases, uh, we we can forget what's most central, what's most basic, what's most elemental. Uh, And in doing that, someone like Thomas or many other patristic and medieval figures to whom we ought to turn and learn much, uh, they can seem enemies. They can seem threatening. Uh, They can seem rather beside the point. I mean, I could add my own anecdotes that are like your own. I remember when I was interning at a PCA church and speaking once with the senior pastor who is a very learned man and uh, a senior figure in the denomination and uh, when he asked me what I was enjoying reading the most that term and I commented on how much I was enjoying reading through s- systematically uh, Thomas's Summa Theologiae uh, he commented on how that that was an odd thing for me to be reading uh, <laughs> and uh you know that that stood out to me as a very intelligent, well read person in my tradition, uh, finding Thomas to be someone odd or someone on the fringe, mm. someone not normally to be engaged with.
0: Do you think this, I mean, there's maybe we're speculating some here. Uh, there, there could be all kinds of reasons for this. But do you think, in part, you've mentioned uh, some of that Protestant um, cage stage or, or polemical stage. Just very practically, though. Could it also be that in our reading of church history or even in our reading of theology, have we relied maybe a little bit too much on secondary sources rather than reading some of the great books of the past?
2: I do think that's that's a part of it, uh, both in how we uh miss so many figures and then also how we even mangle others that we do give attention to. Um reading secondary sources obviously sometimes is necessary but oftentimes can give you a, a strange distorted or just oddly prioritized picture of what folks are about you know it's not for nothing if you look at secondary sources on Thomas in the middle of the 20th century perhaps the great illustration is the volume on Thomas in uh, the wonderful library of christian classics series that's still in print and that for a half century's been uh, a remarkable hallmark uh, of English text translation. Thomas's volume there is put together by a philosopher named A.M. Fairweather, and the selections that are given are remarkably uh, focused on matters of philosophical foundations mm-hmm. and of philosophical ethics. Uh, so it focuses on issues of reason and faith and then on virtues and vices. It's entitled or subtitled On Nature and Grace, and uh, there's there's rather little regarding grace there, and actually what it talks about nature is also rather thin, too. Mm. Um, You contrast that with some more recent studies that give a sketch of uh, Thomas's account excerpts and and readers that are out, and there's been a shift that folks have, in the last few decades— uh, sort of remembered that Thomas was first and foremost a, a master of the sacred page by vocation. He was a, a lecturer on the Bible, and that even his more philosophical and theological works are by and large meant to uh, help us understand what's going on when we read Scripture and return us to read Scripture more effectively and faithfully. Um, and so that shaped the kind of topics and the kind of emphases that we we realize uh Philosophy is not his first love, nor his greatest priority. Aristotle is not his ultimate source mm. um we We have a, a very different recasting of what Thomas was about uh, I think that can have a an outsized impact on people's impressions to be sure
0: now, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Thomas or maybe they they have heard something or other of thomas, but they have they've never read Thomas for themselves. Maybe we should just take a step back and introduce them to the man, the myth, the legend, uh, the theologian, the philosopher, and, and so much else. Can you just start us off? I mean, who was Thomas Aquinas? What were what What was his major contribution, and uh, why Why is he so pivotal? Uh, why was he not just so pivotal for his own time, but even for the centuries that came after him?
1: Yeah.
2: I'll give you sort of the the brief story. Thomas is born somewhere 1224, 1225, and we know that he dies on March 7th, 1274, so he's right about 49, 50 years old when he dies. Uh, He's born near Naples, and uh, he uh, has a good education, eventually studying in college in Naples and then at the University in Paris. And uh, eventually uh, in 1242 or 43, we're not sure of the exact date, uh, he devotes himself to the order of preachers, the Dominican order. And that involves a, a number of vows among them, a vow of poverty. His family are not terribly keen on this. One of the great oddities of church history, these things pop up from time to time, is that he's got a brother who it seems at the behest of others in the family uh, has him kidnapped for the better part of a year to keep him from going <laughs> and devoting himself to the Dominican order <laughs> not only that but he he doesn't merely kidnap him he also hires a prostitute to go into him That's and right. the the thought is of course that the brother will cave morally and then he'll uh, be morally incapable of pledging devotion to the Dominican order and rule of life.
1: A a very caring Uh, brother. (laughs)
2: That's right. Yeah, and uh, it turns out that Thomas refuses the prostitute, and he endures the kidnapping. And so eventually, after a year, his family allows him to return uh, to his goal of joining the Dominicans. And he spends the remainder of his life, uh, the next roughly three decades, as a a Dominican monk, and as a teacher. Uh, He'll serve a couple stints at the University of Paris, which was the leading university in the Middle Ages. Uh, It was sort of the equivalent of an Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Princeton. Uh, It was that in this time period. Uh, He had a a stint in the middle of his teaching career where he served at a small seminary-like setting, uh, but returned again to Paris. So he was right in the center of the most lively intellectual discussions. Um, and Paris, of course, is a university setting where uh, the church and the academy are intermingled in all sorts of ways, and that brings mm-hmm. about controversies and debates, uh, particularly in this time period. Uh, Thomas is there in about the second or third generation of trying to wrestle with the re-entry of Aristotle's philosophy to the Christian West. Uh, Aristotle had been lost to the West and Jewish and Muslim commentators and translators were the only ones who kept his texts alive. And uh, just before Thomas's time, uh, Aristotle's returned. And so there are debates about whether or not Christians can buy into any of this, whether or not Christians must agree with all of this, or Mm -hmm. whether or not some, uh, method of critical appropriation is the, the pathway to making sense of this Aristotelian corpus. So Thomas is really involved in a lot of broader conversations about the intellectual life in that time period. He's involved in training those who are going to go serve as priests, um, and he's involved in, in writing texts that have influence, not just in his own day, but throughout the centuries, um, of a variety of sorts. Uh, he would lecture daily, and we have many of his biblical lectures, uh, many of which have been translated into English in recent years. That's been a, a new part of his corpus that English-speaking readers can now study in a way that we couldn't before. Uh, he wrote a number of texts that are of more philosophical commentary on Aristotle and others. Um, and he wrote a number of what we would call, somewhat anachronistically, theological systems uh where he's trying to give a an orderly account of Christianity and of the gospel. Uh and there are at least four different efforts that he made to that end, all of which are significant in their own way, the most famous being the Summa Theologiae, uh, which he leaves unfinished at the end of his life. He purports to have a spiritual vision in his last days that is so staggering in its beauty and he's so awestruck from taking it in that he feels as though He can't say anything that's of worth, Mm. Uh, and so it remains as something of an unfinished cathedral, intellectually speaking. Uh, So lots of contributions to uh, priestly formation, to intellectual developments in the 13th century, uh, to shaping uh, sort of late medieval theology uh, just a few centuries before the time of the Reformation. and continuing through in the life of both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches to impact us today in a variety of ways.
0: Now, let's talk about Thomas's theology for a second, uh, because you've mentioned some of his contribution, which uh, I I really like the way you set this up, because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes the caricature is that, well, Thomas is just a philosopher. Uh, He's just interacting, say, with Aristotle, Uh, when in reality, that's that's really one facet of the theologian, the man, the Christian himself uh there's many other facets i I like how you've mentioned uh Thomas as giving biblical lectures um, that are that are uh focusing on different books of the Bible, different themes in the bible uh as well as some of his more systematic work now when we get into his theology I think One of the, the, really one of the most um, beneficial aspects of his theology, in in my own journey at least, has been coming around to his doctrine of God. Um, Thomas really shows the importance of attributes that in the modern period and by modern theologians are sometimes abandoned altogether or significantly modified. Uh, Some of these attributes include uh, attributes like simplicity or immutability, impassibility, eternity, and others. How how might this classical, what, what we're now calling a classical view of God, uh, is this uh, something we should retrieve today, uh, especially uh, in light of modern theology, which in many ways is, is domesticating the transcendent God that Aquinas would have affirmed?
1: Yeah. I-
2: I think it's not for nothing that Thomas begins his famous Summa in talking about who God is, how we can know God, what God's character is like, his attributes, as you put it, or his names, as we'll sometimes speak of, and then of how God is identified as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune nature of God. And he addresses that before he talks about anything else, before he gets to creation and to humanity and to what we're made for and you know to our fall into sin and our need for grace and long before he talks about Christ and the various sacraments um, and so there is an earnestness and a centrality to the way in which God is the first and the last and at the very heart of all things Thomas defines theology as being about God and all things in relation to God. Uh, that theology is uh, about each and everything. It's as global as could possibly be. It's it's not a sphere or a part of reality that we look at. It's everything. But that always and everywhere, we're tracing reality back to God. Um, and there's a couple things we could observe about that. One is that it's not unique to Thomas. Others. Augustine, of course, centuries before, uh, would talk about how you're to love all other things or persons for God's own sake, as Augustine will put it regularly. And that means you need to ask, how does something or someone exist for God's own sake? And medieval figures before and after Thomas will share with him the language of reducing all things to God, not that God's the only interesting thing in, in various realities, but that God always is the first thing and the most important thing. And so you always have to ask, how does something, some experience, some event, some blessing, some person, how do they relate to God? Um, you always have to trace things back to God, never to be satisfied to look at the superficialities, but always to look at their substantial reality in God in whom they live and move and have their being, uh, from whom, through whom, and to whom they are. Um, that's the first thing to say that there's this real robust commitment to tracing everything back to God always and everywhere. As we look at any part of reality. The second thing is that if, if God is going to be the kind of being that you can trace all things back to, then God's got to be really exceptional because <laughs> <laughs> you, you think of any other being, any other person, uh, and you surely can't trace everything back to them.
1: Mm.
2: Uh, you know, uh, I, I oftentimes think that most of us have a greater sense of self-importance than we actually bear. I I, I tend to interpret a variety of interactions as being more about me than they often are Mm. uh, and have to realize, well, that's not about you. You're not the most central player here. And that's a a pretty common human sinful response to assume things are about you and that you're at the heart of them. Uh, And it's not just that I'm a rather ordinary human and a, a more exceptional human would would have greater explanatory power, be at the center of things. No, it's creatures aren't at the heart of things. Um, And yet Thomas believes that God is the center of all reality. And for that to be true, God's got to be transcendent and exceptional. He's got to be, as Thomas will put it, uh, not just a species all his own, but in a genus all his own. He's literally in a class by himself Uh, And so Thomas will talk about these attributes of, of God and about this remarkably strange triunity of God. And he'll reflect on the patristic and medieval heritage where reading the Bible, they would look at Israel's scriptures speaking about Israel's God being one and the only Lord of all creation, of all heaven and earth, not only the creator, but the redeemer of all. Uh, where he would look at the New Testament, the Apostles' witness, uh, that there is one God and one Lord, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and he would reflect on these things at, at great length, and a number of these attributes that you mentioned, simplicity, uh, immutability, eternality, uh, impassibility, these attributes that he reflects on are meant to show us how God uh, is truth and goodness and beauty in and of himself, how the Bible portrays him to be uh, the only uh, eternal and everlasting Lord, um, the only one who stands in this, this class of uncreated being, of self-sufficient life, the only one whose essence is to exist, to have all things in and of himself. Uh, And so it's important to catch that Thomas does, in a powerful way, commend and analyze and exegetically try and show uh, the source of what we might call his classical theism, his approach to the divine attributes and the the doctrine of the Trinity. It's also important to see the, the purpose of that, how that really funds or it explains why he can have such a God entranced view of all things, where God is that to whom, or the one to whom, all things are to be traced back. And uh, both both facets of that are crucial for Tom.
0: Let's take a break and hear from Midwestern Seminary.
1: Midwestern Seminary's eighty-one hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment, passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America, as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.
0: We're back from our break, and we're ready to jump back into our conversation with Michael Allen about the massive and colossal theologian Thomas Aquinas. Now, Thomas not only wrote on the doctrine of God, uh, as you've mentioned, uh, this there's an earnestness about this um this section of his Summa, but uh, moving from the doctrine of God, he and and for Thomas this is a very natural move in many ways. He moves to uh, what we might call today Christian virtues. Uh, you've uh, you very helpfully have made the point that everything traces back to God. Maybe we could even draw a circle there, as everything traces back to God. It, it maybe it circles back around then to interpreting. Everything else, including uh, humanity and the virtues that that do or don't define us, in light of who God is. Um, for Thomas, though, uh, how how do we think through some of these Christian uh, virtues, especially you know, when as Christians today, when we talk about the Christian life, oftentimes we we speak of it as Christian living. Uh, sometimes this these type of discussions can. Uh, unfortunately, be very surface level or superficial, but that doesn't seem to be the case with Thomas. Why is that? Why is that so? In light of of his whole theology, what, why is his understanding of Christian ethics, Christian virtues, even Christian living, so much more robust than what we see
2: today? Yeah, I, I think you you put your finger on it that there's something substantial and not merely superficial here, and uh, maybe it's helpful to sketch what some of his goals were in writing his Summa, morally speaking, uh, and pedagogically speaking, so that maybe it, it emphasizes the kind of role Thomas played in his own day. And actually, I, I think we could say it's important to catch how he was an utter failure in his mm-hmm. own day. Um, we we oftentimes think Thomas is the great example of Roman Catholic moral theology, and that means that he's got uh, this Rather crass, sort of legalistic approach in mind. And it, it's important to note that Thomas in his own day was actually someone who was seeking to reform pastoral care in the 13th century. He was someone training priests, and the primary priestly interaction with lay persons uh, is not by and large going to be in a, a mass, a worship service, because. Uh, you're not going to have the same language used that the people can understand. A homily isn't going to be in the vernacular, by and large. The one place where you can actually offer real spiritual direction at a a cognitive level um, that's understood is in the confessional booth. Thomas is mindful of what he views as major problems in the confessional practice of the Roman Catholic Church. He's fully on board with the the penitential system and the confessional booth. Um, In theory... But he thinks that it falls into superficiality often, uh, that uh, a priest is trained basically in in their courses to know that when someone comes in and says, forgive me, Father, I cheated on my taxes, uh, that they ought to repeat uh, the same directives and they ought to give certain external prompts so that the person can go make amends and uh, receive absolution, that they can uh, be brought back into God's good graces. And Thomas believes that the problem was superficiality. It was mere external redirection of behavior, and that it it really didn't get to heart issues. It didn't get to relational issues regarding uh, our relationship to Christ and to the God to whom uh, we are reconciled. And so he actually wrote the Summa not to avoid the kind of moral direction that priests need to be able to give regarding the vices we fall into, the sins we commit, the virtues we're called to, and the kinds of obedience uh, that we ought to offer, but to contextualize that. And so it's not for nothing that Thomas locates uh, the sections on morality, on sin, and on grace right in the middle of the Summa. And he He argues that you've got to understand who God is and who we are first, and only then do moral demands make sense. And you need to then follow it up by talking about how Christ is the one in whom God and humanity are reconciled, and how Christ, in his grace, not only in his salvation in the first century, but the way he continues to administer his grace, primarily through the the sacramental life of the church, how that Brings us back or reunites us to God, and so Thomas is actually attempting to bring about a, a moral reform in the priestly practice of the 13th century Church. Now he he totally fails because he writes the Summa in this manner, and as soon as he dies, uh, what happens? They cut out the moral part of the Summa that looks like the textbooks they already had, and they read this for roughly the next century. Mm. So that his entire effort to provide this theological and gracious framework for moral formation is excised, hmm. and the part that basically sounded mostly like what others had already been doing was exerted and passed around. And it's really going to be decades before folks are, are re-encountering his text as he'd intended it to be uh, read. And so, why do I bring that up? Well, not to suggest that Thomas is a Protestant. You know, he. He has a a very Roman notion of justification, for example. Uh, He's got a a vivid sense of medieval Roman Catholic sacramentology and so forth. There are lots of ways in which he is a paradigmatic leading example of the Roman theology that Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and others are going to protest, and Mm. that we've got good reason to protest. Um, But it is worth noting that He also is a precursor of the Reformers in a variety of ways. He was pushing back against superficiality. He was concerned about externalism. Uh, He was disappointed in the Christlessness of pastoral care. Uh, His reforms didn't push all the way to Protestantism. Uh, On the other hand, a lot of our Protestant moral theology doesn't always push all the way back to its roots in the doctrine of God, like Thomas did. And so uh, I think we can read him more sympathetically and both agree and disagree and learn and and, and sort of protest a variety of angles of how in his teaching on virtue and vice, on obedience and on sin, uh, the ways in which he was really trying to restore a, a more biblical frame to pastoral care in particular
0: now you've mentioned uh previously well you've at least hinted at thomas's understanding of faith and reason especially as different philosophers have picked it up either sympathetic or or sometimes they're being very critical and not, and not just philosophers but theologians as well uh, i mean i think it's fair to say that some uh, have been so suspicious toward uh, Thomas that they believe him to have gone the route of rationalism. And uh, instead of turning to Scripture, Thomas is just turning to reason alone to formulate his theology and so on. How how would you respond to those who are suspicious in this way? Uh, you've, you've definitely uh, shed some light on uh, given us a more nuanced, balanced view of Thomas and, and the virtues in his moral uh, theology. But when it comes to faith and reason, this may be—maybe uh, it, it, it's debatable, but, but this may be one of the most controversial aspects uh, of Thomas's theology, or or perhaps it might be more accurate to say the interpretation of his theology— How do you respond to that type of uh, suspicion? And for Thomas, what is the relationship between faith and reason?
2: Sure. Yeah, it gets to be a rather complex question, and there's a a whole nest of different issues involved in it. Uh, Perhaps there are a few things that are are just helpful suggestions, not a a full comprehensive answer, Uh, but things to keep in mind. Uh, One, of course, is that Thomas traces everything back to God ultimately, and what he finds in the biblical account is that God is wisdom, God is light, and that God is light in such a way that he's not only intelligible to himself, but we read that he shines light, he illumines others. And Thomas believes, and he argues in a a remarkably decisive way that shapes theology ever since, Uh, that God illumines us and reveals truth to us in a way that uh, is analogical, where we can, as creatures, know God, not univocally, not as God knows himself or not as we know other creaturely things, but also not equivocally, not completely differently. Uh, That our words and concepts really do have connection as well as difference. There's a a similarity and a dissimilarity when we're considering what it means for God to be good and for Cuban coffee to be good. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's an analogy there. And Thomas uh, presents a doctrine of analogy that's absolutely crucial. And it's it's really premised on this notion of how uh, we participate in the life and blessings of God by His grace and His provision in creation and then in redemption in Christ. That's the first thing. Uh, that the doctrine of God revealed in Scripture gives us good reasons to believe that we can come to know things. Um, How do we come to know things? Well, Thomas is a teacher of of sacred Scripture. That's his job. And for him, uh, sacred doctrine and sacred Scripture are quite literally the same thing. As you read the very uh, first question of his Summa, he identifies them as one and the same. That being said, he is not someone who believes that as long as you've got your Bible, uh, you will find that there's nothing out there worth learning in the world. In fact, he actually believes the Bible itself teaches us, and thus, as Bible-believing Christians, we are duty-bound to affirm that we can learn things outside the Bible uh, in nature. And so, Thomas Uh, is paradigmatic in teaching that there is a form of natural theology uh, that Romans 1, 19-20 teach, that we are duty-bound to believe, uh, that it's not effective for salvation because we suppress the knowledge of God revealed in nature, but that nonetheless it really is revealed in nature, and we really do know it. Um, Protestants, particularly the Reformed, my own tradition, Uh, will typically, and I think rightly, push back at some of the ways in which Thomas will later describe the cognitive capacities of men and women in their fallen state. Um, But we ought not let that be the sole thing we consider. First, we need to consider that he really is commending this biblical exegetical case for believing that not only revelation, but also nature and reason uh, serve as, as conduits whereby God uh, reveals himself. Um, it's worth noting that various more radical reform traditions, um, both the sort of Bardian strand and uh, some of the Vantilian strand in the 20th century, uh, share an ironic commonality uh, in believing that there is no uh, reform doctrine of natural theology. Mm. And it's worth noting that that's not the classical Reformed approach. Uh, The classical Reformed approach isn't by any means sort of holistically Thomistic or anything. Uh, There's an eclectic drawing on patristic and medieval sources of a variety of forms. But Thomas is right in the the center uh, of that continuum. And uh, there is a common shared exegetical belief that we have good biblical reason to believe that God reveals himself also outside the Bible in nature, in what we'd call general revelation, uh, and in what leads to a, a doctrine of natural theology.
0: Now, you've also, moving from, say, natural theology, uh, and, and I like the way you've positioned this within the classical Reformed approach, um, and, and some of the irony here that we see with Van Til and Bart. But if we move from, say, natural theology to uh, maybe uh, an aspect of Christianity that's more or less neglected or put out of sight, um, I, what, what I have in mind here is uh, some of the ways that um, we, we might use, say, our theological method uh, to interpret um, the beatific vision or uh, even reason Reason itself or uh, asceticism in, in in much of the Christian life, we move from natural theology to to these issues. How does Thomas square up? Uh, you've written a chapter recently in a book, a new book called Aquinas Among the Protestants. I imagine for some, uh, some of your argument there is going to be controversial. Uh, you've argued that there may be ways to appropriate Thomas uh, as we develop our theological method today. Uh, you've even advocated for what what you're calling a Reformed Thomism. Uh, what does this look like? And uh, in what ways would you argue that actually Thomas could be very useful for theology today? Uh, and maybe we could press that a little bit further and say, is this type of Reformed Thomistic approach, is it helpful in avoiding Uh, a a type of method that, uh, well, you have theology determined by the cultural agenda of our own day, whether it's in regards to um, reason within the economy of the gospel or an intellectual asceticism uh, and and many other
2: facets. Yeah, maybe there's two strands I'd mention just briefly. The, The first would be that Thomas, and and this isn't unique to Thomas, but he's a great example of a deeper Augustinian tradition that I I would hope we would reappropriate more fully uh, as Reformed believers, particularly, and evangelicals more broadly. um, That we really need to have a biblically refined metaphysics or an understanding of reality. And Thomas is remarkably helpful in this regard. You can find this, of course developed much further back, reading in the early patristic figures, um, ranging from Irenaeus um, to Augustine much more fully. Uh, But Thomas is remarkable in the way he describes created being, uncreated being, the way in which we participate uh, in the life and blessing and glory of God by his kindness in both nature and then in grace and eventually in glory. And we need that kind of understanding of reality. Uh, we need that largely because we we are increasingly living again in a Western world that uh, has very different and has very pluralistic pictures of reality that are increasingly uh, antagonistic towards anything approximating the Christian metaphysics, uh, whether it's in the form of materialism. Uh, or it's in the, the form of some kind of creatureism or historicism. There's very different ways of, of being trained and shaped to view the world and oneself. And uh, I, I think unless we've got a metaphysics that is shaped by the Bible and that's gleaning from the, the Augustinian tradition in particular, of which Thomas is a great example, we're going to find we're using a lot of biblical and traditional language, but we're Wrongly uh, loading it with strange meaning, um, and so uh, reappropriating that metaphysics would be really significant. Secondly, and you mentioned a, a phrase that I I try and use reg- regularly: the notion of uh, asceticism as an intellectual reality. The, the notion of self-denial for the sake of a greater good as not just something that you do with regard to your belly. I'm going to give up food for the sake of either getting fit or of devoting myself in fasting and prayer unto God, uh, but that it's an intellectual practice, a theological practice, that we want to deny ourselves for the sake of God's own kingdom, and that that's true in the sanctification of our reason. And Thomas is an exemplar in this regard. Uh, even the very way in which he goes about writing his Summa He forces you to deal with the most serious counter-positions to his own. Uh, He forces you to name the various authorities that speak into a given question. Uh, And only then does he allow himself to say what he actually thinks. And saying what he thinks, he forces himself then to respond point by point to each and every opposing argument, not only to rebuff it, but to point out how what is good and beautiful about it might be better Uh, heralded, and still maintained even where he disagrees with it. Mm. Uh, It's a remarkable format, a scholastic protocol, that's meant to make sure that he doesn't play fast and loose with the truth, that he's not unfair or uncharitable in dealing with others, and that he's not anything less than truly self-critical about what he believes. And that means that he's going to first and foremost submit to the authority of Holy Scripture, but that he's also going to submit to other relevant authorities, the doctors of the faith, uh, even philosophical leaders, uh, folks like Plato or Aristotle, um, that he's going to glean from contemporaries as well. And I I think in that respect, he's an exemplar in his practice uh, as someone who's devoted to the life of the mind as a a practice of the sanctification of our reason, and as involving a commitment to self-denial and what we might call intellectual asceticism. And I think that's something we need to recover, uh, this side of the Enlightenment, and in particular, in our moment, um, where critical theory and postmodernism and a number of other movements trading under different names would suggest that the intellectual life is uh, about expressing one's identity and styling oneself in the language of Michel Foucault. Uh, we need to suggest that the Christian way is very different, that the path of illumination and wisdom is about dependence and faith, and that means it's not about uh, puffing up my own chest, uh, sticking, out, you know, sticking my own chin up, but it's about humbly, self-critically, Uh, faithfully submitting my mind and thoughts to God, Uh, and not just to God directly, but to God through the various intermediaries or means of intellectual grace. His holy word, most authoritatively, uh, but other uh, gracious authorities provided to me by him. And, And I think Thomas is a great exemplar in that regard.
0: This is a great reminder that... When we talk about, you've, you've used the phrase intellectual asceticism, uh, but you've also, in describing it, have used words like humility, faith, trust, uh, a, a type of humility that brings us to God and listens to him first. This is a tremendous reminder that whenever we sit down to write theology, think theologically, or uh, even absorb someone else's theological arguments, uh, we, we have to do so. As those who are within that mindset of faith seeking understanding, and when we here we're we're talking about Thomas, of course, but really Thomas, uh, if we're painting with a very broad brush here, I think we could say Thomas falls within that framework of the, some of the the greats, as we call them, whether it's an Augustine or an Anselm or in this case uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, these greats are approaching God, the world, their own human predicament with with this mindset of faith, seeking understanding rather than um, an, an understanding that's trying to to turn to reason itself or maybe even reason alone in order to really accomplish faith on its own merits. And Thomas, like you've said, Thomas is an incredible example of Though, though not a perfect one by his own admission, as we see towards the end of his life, as he stops writing his Summa, but Thomas is an example of what that can look like. This type of intellectual asceticism that comes with a strong dose of uh, really intellectual humility, uh, which is biblical in every sense of every sense of the word. Well, um, goodness, we could go on and talk about Thomas for another hour, I suppose, maybe two hours, but. Uh, we need to stop and before we do so would you just really briefly would you for those listeners who who think okay i'm not so suspicious towards thomas anymore you've got me interested there's some some uh, aspects of his thought i want to explore uh where should they turn what on the one hand what would be maybe a recommended biography and if you know goodness thomas wrote so much but if they were to pick up maybe one or two of his books what would you recommend
2: yeah, there are so many options. I'm staring at a whole bookcase of stuff right now, so it can be overwhelming to folks. Um, I would say skip a straight-on biography. Uh, aside from his brother kidnapping him and trying to get him to sleep with the prostitute, which I've already told you,
1: um,
2: you know, his life is that of a professor, so it's not the most scintillating. He's uh-huh. not an Athanasius. Um But what I would commend is a very small volume that provides a chapter's worth of biography, which is plenty enough uh, for someone getting into him for the first time, and then gives a great brief description of his theology, and in particularly an outline of his Summa Theologiae. And that's Fergus Kerr's little book, Thomas Aquinas, A Very Short Introduction. It's in a small little paperback Series by Oxford University Press. Very cheap little book. It's wonderful. It's the best small introduction to him. Best secondary source I could commend for somebody starting out. And then for actually reading Thomas, the best volume I would recommend is by Frederick Bauer Schmidt. It's a volume called Holy Teaching Introducing the Summa Theologiae of St. Thomas Aquinas, published by Brazos Press. It's about 300 pages. And it it provides excerpts from across the Summa, all the various doctrines, and it actually teaches you how to read it. When you open it up for the first time, the Summa, like any medieval scholastic text, can seem rather alien and strange. Um, There are numerals and there there are odd organizing factors. And this actually helps show you how once you know how to read it, it's remarkably easy to read uh, because it's so orderly and predictable in certain respects. And bauer does a great job providing footnotes to show the reader how they can actually read Thomas. Uh, not just that they can know what he thought, but that they can have confidence and competence in turning to him themselves. I've used it with students in classes and uh, have never found uh, that students have, at the end of a term, been incapable of reading Thomas on their own. Uh, so I'd recommend Fergus Kerr's little introduction and Frederick Bauer Schmidt's holy teaching as a, a reader.
0: Mike, it's been great to have you on the Credo podcast uh, to discuss Thomas Aquinas, and uh, hopefully this will be a conversation that will help uh, evangelicals not only appreciate Thomas, but actually dig into him, especially with those book recommendations you've given. So thank you again for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks so
0: much. Unfortunately, we live in a day when evangelicals at large are unfamiliar with some of the great uh, theologians of the past, theologians that uh, have been forgotten to church history for any number of reasons, and one of those is Thomas Aquinas. I think that there are a lot of caricatures floating around. Maybe you've heard some of these yourself, caricatures that would uh, really discourage you from picking up uh, a book by Thomas, or considering some of his own theological contribution. And that's really a shame, because as we've seen in this podcast, Thomas actually has much to contribute to theology. Uh, Sure, he may not be exactly lining up with what we would consider evangelical doctrines of the faith in every respect, but in others, uh, he certainly is. And perhaps we can make an argument that, well, the Roman Catholic Church shouldn't necessarily have a a, a total claim on Thomas. Yes, his doctrines of, say, justification of the sacraments certainly do plant the seeds for what will later come with Roman Catholicism. That being said, uh, much of Thomas's theology is actually very fruitful for uh, what we would consider Reformed thought, Reformed thinking today— We've seen in our discussion with Michael Allen that Thomas actually has much to say about the doctrine of God, about faith and reason, about Christian virtues, even what uh, Mike Allen called intellectual asceticism, which includes a type of Christian humility and and really a, a fidelity in approaching all kinds of intellectual issues. The list goes on, but we've seen that uh, Thomas is actually very insightful. He not only gives us a rigorous theology, but most importantly, he gives us a theology that drives us back to God. And when we get there, when we arrive, what we see is really a buffet in which Thomas gives us attributes of God that have been forgotten or neglected in our day in which we are still coming out of what we might call the modern era, uh, the Enlightenment, and and then after it, postmodernism. God has, in many respects, been domesticated. He's been tamed. One of the delights of reading Thomas Aquinas is that when you open the, the book and turn turning the pages, you realize this is not a God who's been domesticated. Thomas is taking us back to the scriptures themselves to give us Uh, a doctrine of God, and really not just a doctrine of God, but an entire Christian faith that is grounded in the scriptures and helps us interpret not only who God is, but helps us interpret the world around us in a very theocentric way.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.